You're listening to Red Center, your guide to digital cinema, filmmaking, and cutting-edge imaging. Hello, and welcome to this week's Red Center, coming to you from Los Angeles. Well, half of us are in Los Angeles. Jace, how are you? I'm very well. I'm not from in Los Angeles. I'm in sunny Sydney. Is it sunny? Oh, please tell me it is. It, is. it okay. is today. It's getting ready for your return. I, I, what I need you to do, if you can, is play some music and then jolt me. <laughs> Why? Oh, you haven't seen Inception? No, I have not yet. <laughs> no, I haven't yet. I will do. <laughs> the Jason Wingrove hasn't seen Inception? Oh, my God. Okay. I'm dying to. Dying to. Yeah, but totally need to, man. It has to be when the whole wife-husband thing can coordinate itself. Okay. I'm just saying. Okay. No, dying to see it. Very keen to see it. Um, <clears throat> yes. Well, there you go. Okay. Uh, so you've been away. I have been away, and I'm still away, and soon I will be jolted back to uh, Sydney. Hopefully that would be like tomorrow, uh, which is about the time that you're um, hopefully getting this uh, podcast. I've been shooting in Yellowstone on... Uh, almost exclusively on SLRs. I think if we'd had an epic tattoo, well, obviously we'd have been using that. But when we planned the trip <laughs> and what happened in reality, two different things. So we ended up shooting just on uh, SLRs. And it was always our intention to focus primarily on uh, SLR for video production because it's for one of our courses uh, for FX PhD. And I don't need to tell you, Jace, that's a lot of fun. Oh, I bet. That sounds fantastic. I've seen some of the pics from Jellystone and it looks sensational. I just love it. It would be just really, really nice. Boys' own adventure stuff, getting out in the wild and well, I guess you were making uh, campfires and toasting marshmallows and singing Yeah, hardly. Songs and so the thing was, beans. we were actually sleeping in a lodge in Montana and filming in Wyoming. And uh, Tyler right. Ginter was with us. Tyler, you'll know from the show. Uh, obviously, a captain in the uh, US Army, head of combat camera for the US Army and a hell of a nice guy. Um, we were basically trying to shoot inside the system with permits, doing stuff properly with a load of gear. So just we've been shooting with uh, car mounts, motion control rigs, uh, sliders, steady cams, just a ton of stuff. I've been falling in love with this bloody um, car rig. Oh, my God. Fantastic. It's awesome. Yeah, I mean, obviously, this is the perfect takeoff from what Stu started, which was really, I guess, at the, the forefront of the whole DSLR thing, which kind of started in the middle of our podcast, I suppose. And then obviously now everyone's a little bit more up to speed with the cameras. I guess you're then now taking it one step further about what you can do with them, where you can put, you know, exploring things a little bit more rather than just point and shooting. Well, yeah, because the the thing about uh, the stuff we did in Japan, it was urban and it was really cool. We loved it. But of course, it was very much what you might consider to be outside the, the system. We didn't get permits to shoot in Japan. We just, you know, had fun and went wild with it. And and we got terrific footage, don't get me wrong. But, mm. but that being said, um, of course, this was different. And this was a whole generation of technology later. We had Secudo rigs. We had uh, Red Rock Micro. We had um genus we had a ton of rigs to go through and the lenses oh my god um but let me give you an idea you had some some big stuff (laughs) we did if you allow for the crop factor on the 7d we got up to a 1280 millimeter lens excellent um, shooting wildlife but what this is our day we'd get up at about 4 30 in the morning so we could leave the uh place we were staying at five which was a remote kind of hunting lodge and then we'd 
get to location at six so we could be filming for sunrise. We'd film all throughout the day and we'd have drifted a long way into the park by this stage. So when we stopped filming after the sun went down, and you know that post-sun just gone down light is oh, some of the best magic, of the day. which these cameras just utterly love. Don't they love it? Yeah. Just so in, love it. So we did that, and that meant that um, we wouldn't finish till 9 o'clock. Now it took us two hours to get back because, as I say, we drifted. So we get back to this hunting lodge thing at 11 o'clock at night, in which case we'd start uh, barbecuing and have dinner at about midnight and then go to sleep as fast as we could so we could get up in four hours later <laughs> to, to do it all over again. And when we'd had enough of that for a week, we decided we'd come to L.A. for Sidgraph. So there you go. Uh, I think what was really nice for you guys and would have made it fantastic is that you had uh, John Montgomery, your other, other half of uh, – or your, one of your other partners for FX, uh, FX Guide with you. Yeah, the thing, had about, a great time. the thing about John is he – he kind of grew up in um, that sort of environment and he's just a natural at it. So he did all the planning. He sorted out all the great stuff that we had in terms of the location, the permissions and everything else, which I might say was really, really good. You know, we, we slam people a lot for not allowing people to shoot places. But when yeah. we were shooting uh, inside the system with permits, they would actually shut down parts of the park. They would like anyone that was around, had to have a, they could have a two-minute window where they'd ask everyone to be quiet and, and not move and stuff where we shot. Um, we That's got fantastic. the migratory patterns of the animals so that we could... See what happens when you be. ask. Exactly. And we had someone with us that would stop traffic and do all sorts of things. So, um, And it didn't cost a fortune. I mean, it wasn't free, but it didn't cost a fortune. And sure. it, was, it was invaluable. And so... And it's not like you're a million-dollar, you know, multi-million-dollar feature film. It's fantastic no. that they sort of, you know, give you as much uh, credit as... As you know, a big feature, I guess. And and what was terrific this is we were shooting literally grizzly bears and magic hour. I mean, which is just you know unbelievable. Yeah. Awesome. And um, we got tremendous access. Uh, there was some spectacular scenery, but just we wanted to do some really good wildlife stuff with long lenses. And we um, we also wanted to do a bunch of tests because this was aimed at SLR for video. So the questions we had were things like, look, I've got a seventy to two hundred, as you know. If I put a doubler on that, that gets me to a 400. How does that compare to, say, renting a $9,000 400mm lens mm-hmm. or getting a 100 to 400mm zoom? Like, is that worthwhile? Will I notice any difference? Um, you know, where are we at? And some of those, um, 100 to 400, for example, is not particularly fast. Now, you do lose some stops with the uh, doubler, but, you know, how do they sure. compare? So we would shoot test sequences in the, uh, in the wild and then compare those to see whether it was worthwhile or not. And, and there was a lot of that kind of stuff, you know, comparing everything from maybe I bought a new 1.2 right through to 1.4 and 1.8 type uh, 50 millimeter lenses. So that was good. So, sorry, what did you just say? Maybe you bought a new 1.2. What? What did you just say about a 1.2? Okay, I, I, I caved. But here's the thing, and, 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 and everybody's been giving me shit on this, but here's the thing, right? <laughs> You're going to Yellowstone to shoot awesome wildlife footage. Do you really want, on a matter of principle, to not have the 1.2 when someone you respect as much as Jim Mashawich has told you that you should and someone and, like Jason Wingrove has told you that you should? And you do need that extra stop. You do need that extra billionth of a stop. I don't think you need the half a stop as much as you need the build quality. I'm, I'm with you. But look. Yeah, no, definitely. I, look, absolutely. It's, it, it's uh, yeah. Anyway, I did. So um, <laughs> I already had the 35mm L-series and it's such a nice lens and mm. – um, and, you know, I shoot a lot and it's a, it's a sensible thing to do. But yeah. Tyler was magnificent. I mean, this guy is um, – he has 200 guys reporting to him. It's, as you know, such a nice guy mm. and so modest. And yet the footage – like, oh, I came back the first day and he had this stuff. I, I was beside him and I had a similar, if not identical, 5D 
with a similar, if not identical, set of lenses. And my shots on the first day, I got back to the as soon as I got back to the thing, I was like, now, admittedly, in my defence, we wanted him to take the good stuff, but I got back and I went right. I'm going to have to lift my game because when I saw his shots, I was like, and, and it wasn't competitive. It was a really nice atmosphere between everyone that was shooting, but you know, privately, like just even though no yeah. one is is being nasty privately. in any way, shape, you Bastard. go. I better friggin' lift my game because, man, I don't want to be the dude that just never got a good shot. And there are there are like three or four, maybe six sequences in this that I would go, okay, that's Discovery Channel level. That's, you know, that yeah. really is uh, nailing it. So that was wow. very rewarding and I'm very jealous. an enormous amount, all of which is going into our SLR course this time. Yeah, I'll put some of these uh, shots that you've sent me, which just looks beautiful. I'll put some of these in the show notes for sure because there's some gorgeous shots. Very, very jealous. I was here just, you know, shooting away, doing... Regular boring old stuff. Paying paying the mortgage. <laughs> that would have been really 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 nice. But I've already I've I've had my geeky jaunt for for this year and so yeah. I guess for me it was Tyler's wealth of experience in in these cameras meant that like the first thing he did and at my request I said I'll oh, take my camera and just you know change all the settings so they're the same as your other camera because we ended up having four five Ds a one D Mark uh, you know four and a and a seven D. And I said, just set my camera the same as yours and then I can swap them out because, you know, I'm happy as John was to work as like a camera assistant and just be able to yeah. make him uh, not have to stop and, and uh, change now, lenses but just change entire cameras with lenses. Well, to that point, how did you go with that? Because I just did a shoot with a 7D and a 5D and we spent five minutes beforehand checking, comparing the custom profiles. And I'll tell you, it still didn't work. The cameras looked completely different. Yeah, we, we were trying to intercut them so much as we were – testing field of view noise levels um iso yeah. and that kind of stuff um indicating 75d forget it flips me out picking up a 7d when i'm in shooting with a 5d because the menus are yeah. just so different but then you pick up a 1d and you just head explodes um <laughs> i like the 1d a lot it's really good uh but yeah the 5d i think is still um yeah. such a good price point for serious uh video work and and look the other thing is there are some real subtle stuff in the menus that I had just not bothered to, to get into. Mm. Um, and Tyler you know, was giving me tips and tricks, being very, very generous. And so all of that's, as I say, going into the course. And it was really invaluable. You know, I just feel like I've had the most incredibly uh, intense training session. And I was meant to be one of the people doing the training. <laughs> um, so. Excellent. It was good. And you know, look, we got up on top of a mountain and we were filming a bird's nest, effectively like an eagle's nest that wasn't an eagle. Um, and we're on this like 800 millimeter lens at this point and this bird's coming in and doing something like it feeds its young. At least I think it does because I can't see with my eyes. And, um, and then something happens and I'm like, what the hell's going on? And it, these things later, we could look at them on the laptop and actually work out what was going on and actually right. see what would have been happening. And that's that's astounding because you know it really was an education in the wildlife as well. You know how they uh, how they did things. So yeah, good, good, good term. And you know you've got some mates, you've got some bottles of tequila, you've got a ton of gear, you've got no bad vibes about geeking out. You know it's yeah yeah it's eleven thirty at night and you're out in just gorgeous Montana with the sort of fresh air and you're sitting around drinking and talking and swapping war stories. I mean it's. And I mean, you know, like photographic war stories. It's yeah. just magnificent. Fantastic. Well, I was here back here shooting breakfast cereal commercials. So there. But really good breakfast cereal commercials, right? Sure. Well, we'll we shot with the Phantom, which was interesting. Oh, yeah. For the first time, I sort of shot with it really in anger. It was interesting to see as you go down to 1,000 frames a second, 
that all of a sudden your shoot slows down to a thousand frames a second and uh, everything starts to get, <laughs> your level of achievement and ticking things off starts to get very slow as well. Yeah. So as slow as your rushes. But it is a sensationally awesome because I was, you know, my, my DP at the time, uh, Ross Emery, we were kind of joking that um, uh, of the old days, I suppose, of uh, how we would have achieved this and, uh, you know, we were all making the pretend uh, camera noises of winding it up to a thousand frames a second or 300 frames a second and just how quickly we could then go ahead and reshoot uh, and do another take without having to stop and oil all the 50 different felt pads and uh, clean the whole thing out and, um, you know, the reloads of a thousand feet gone in 10 seconds. And so it was uh, it was definitely welcoming the future, but uh, definitely once you start getting into all that little really, really fine macro um, macro work, it uh, definitely does, your, your shoot does uh, definitely bog down. But uh, but great stuff. It was good fun to finally actually shoot with it for uh, uh, for real. So, no, that's very good. Um, so, and now you're at uh, SIGGRAPH. Yeah, where well, there is more there. photographic stuff. Um, in fact, there's more photographic stuff. I just thought it would have been a bit more, um, you know, oscilloscopes and geeky stuff. <laughs> Boy, are you wrong. Um, I actually would go as far as to say that uh, and I know this is a tall order to sort of say, but I actually really think we kind of got to a point like an aha moment of the future of photography um, here. There's stuff here that is uh, an extrapolation of where we're currently sitting, such as the Spheron camera, which I think I tweeted about, which is um, yep. 20 f-stops shooting 50 frames so a second. So that was the Spheron, right. That's the one we, I think we mentioned that uh, a while ago. I think mm-hmm. you maybe maybe a while back that uh, we was sort of in... Um, in vague production, or there was one in the world going to some university two. in England. And there's now two in the world. Mm-hmm. So if I, if I get it right, this does 20 stops latitude. Yeah, it, it shoots 50 frames a second, uh, and in every other respect, it's what you want it to be. Like it's a global shutter, no rolling shutter. It shoots 20 stops dynamic range. It produces a raw file which gets converted to an uh, open EXR, and that open EXR is a 1920 by 1080 full... Uh, frame the camera takes PL mount lenses. Um, it's astounding. Wow. That being said, Sphere on themselves, and I'm guessing this is a reaction to Red, are mm. completely closed. Like I had one of their technology partners personally come up, like the CEO, and say, "These guys are really good. You can really trust them." Blah blah blah. And they were like, "No, we're not going to talk to you." <laughs> And I said, what do you mean? Like, and he's like, well, the thing is we've solved something here and if we give any indication of how we've done it, then that would narrow the beam That's of anybody it. else's research to follow it. Mm. So until we get, I think, to the next generation of this camera, we're just not going to – and I'm like, well, what if somebody wants to buy it? And he said, well, if it was the right person, we would sell one, but what we really want to do is just commercialize the technology. I said, like, well, okay. So is it a CMOS sensor? No. Can you take the PL mount lens off? No. No. Um, and so it was quite funny because, you know, like I was really working hard to try and... And we had a lengthy discussion about stuff that I already knew about, thank you, um, you know, to do with stuff, the mm. how they uh, zeroed and won the, the data, which is all good. And they have actual clips playing on the screen uh, and they have it in Nuke. Unfortunately, I just kind of my head exploded. 
And I wasn't angry, um, but I was like so caught up in desperately trying to work out what was going on that I, before I knew, leant over and started tapping on their nuke keyboard to try and bring up the individual channels of the thing so I could look. At that point, the lid was closed and I wasn't allowed to play anymore. You're going to get arrested, pal. You're going to get secured. I was escorted off the booth. You don't get to play anymore. Um, but I wasn't, wasn't nasty, right? Like they weren't nasty and I wasn't angry. But, but definitely just, a glimpse into the future once they start to commercialize this and license out the technology. You know, literally, as you would expect, a girl and a light bulb and they, you know, she's there looking normal Bulls and then the, the, uh, they go all the way down and all the way up and you can see the filament to the, um, underneath the pop plant. And it's, wow. uh, it looks really low noise. Um, yeah. I challenged another media organization this morning for a box of Patron tequila if they can tell me who makes the chip and whether or not it's CMOS. Uh, I couldn't get any further along than that. I have all the press release that they've so far given and we'll put it in the show notes. But you might say, well, could you answer this, this and this question? And my answer would be, well, I agree. Could you not have done that? But I tried really hard, Jace, and there was just nowhere they were going with it. <laughs> See, uh, they they said, we don't want to discuss it publicly. I said, you're at a trade show, for crying out loud. <laughs> and they're like, yeah, but, you know. It's like, what? Yeah, no. I'm tell I, you how cool we are inventing this thing that you cannot buy and we're not going to license to you and we can't tell you how we're doing it. But there uh, you go. If you remember it? the scene in Spinal Tap where he goes, see this, this, this camera, it goes to 11. Yes. Don't touch it. One. So it's like, Why? hear that? Hear that? <laughs> no, no, it's actually, it's not the 11. That's the amp. He's like, like, hear that? No. Well, but if it was playing, you could. It's just don't like, it. yeah, don't, don't even look at don't it. Don't even well, look at it. Uh, yeah, go, let's walk away. <laughs> it's like, what? <laughs> so, Spheron, we really like what you do, and we would welcome <laughs> any opportunity for any representative of the Spheron Corporation at any point now or in the future to, uh, we'll come to Germany, we'll do whatever, but just, you know. And it's like, oh, God, I, it's not like I didn't understand what an HDR was. They probably could have learned something from you, Mike. I've seen you with those guys. Bloody you, te- you can, you can <laughs> tear them a new one. Technically tear them a new one in about five minutes and just say, yeah, but what about this? Oh, uh, Okay, so oh, on the other flip that. side, just by way of comparison, the other thing that made this show awesome for uh, cameras is that there was a whole section on computational photography. And if I can, I'll just tell you what that is. Um, that you Please. probably know. The... Let's take the iPhone, for example, right? Like the iPhone is a pretty shit camera, but it has a computer, and you can program the computer through the API to access those photos. And what that means is people keep on coming up with really, really, really cool things to do with the photos. So take Stu's uh, application, for example, Plastic Bullet. That yeah. is image processing the clip, and that's a really interesting thing to do. Now, on a normal SLR, what you say is, look, uh, it's digital, but give me the raw file. Don't do any processing because I'll do it downstream. But if you think about what the SLR is doing in reality, is yes, it's digital at the sensor and there's focus and that kind of stuff, but that technology is not really that complicated. I mean, it's not, you know, focusing and stuff. I mean, yes, once you've got the algorithms worked out, which is no small feat, but the computational power to pull off the focus and the stuff just isn't that hard. And certainly it isn't hard to write out a raw frame. Where all the power of the computing on an SLR is, is just basically down-resing the picture and... Mm. It's down-resing to a JPEG. It's down-resing to a QuickTime movie or other, you know, an MPEG stream. It's, it's all that kind of stuff. There's nothing in the back of the camera past the sensor that is improving the image quality. That's why we say, just give me the raw file and I'll do it later. But what if you could combine those two? And so what happened is that the computer side of things, because you obviously can't plug a Canon into your on a laptop and program it. 
what if the computer at the back was actually really powerful and completely controlled the front end of the camera, even more than the API of an iPhone controls the the, the iPhone itself. And then you could do some awesome stuff. And so it was a group out of uh, Stanford that did that. And um, they produced a camera in prototype format called the Franken camera, which I think is hysterical. And it is. It's a really? beast. But they also discovered that the uh, Nokia N900 had an API that did allow them to get out the sensor and stuff. So they produced a version for it on the Nokia iPhone, um, the uh, N900. And what that right. allows you to do is, well, let me give you an example. They, they made this thing, and they then, Nokia, said, oh, that sounds pretty good. We'll give you some phones, and you can give it to some students. So they said to the students, uh, the grads, hey, uh, take this thing for a week and see if you can come up with some kind of focusing algorithm. And most of, I think, three-quarters of the algorithms and stuff they got back implemented in one week were better at focusing the Nokia and did so in half the time. And so Nokia went, what? Okay. You, you, you did what? And they said, well, why don't you just take these for a month? <laughs> and they came back with the most awesome stuff. Because you've got an accelerometer and you've got a gyro and stuff in there, for example, imagine if I was holding an iPhone and I was just moving it like small amounts. Small amounts oh. as in almost like I'm trying to hold it steady but not really very steady, but certainly not waving it around my head, right? Okay, so imagine the sensor, if, it, if you could actually, I don't know... Um, track where the sensor went it would move around in the air and if it was the size of a third of a postage stamp it might end up moving around in a space that's the size of a very large postage stamp or two postage stamps is that making sense like the yeah yeah yep. well what they do is they virtualize from this real small sensor to that bigger space and they produce a theoretical compensated for virtual sensor that is yep. huge like an imax and so you take right. a photo with this thing now admittedly things have to be static but you get a, sh a super shallow depth of field like you'd get out of a 5D out of an iPhone-y type size sensor in the Nokia because it's got a virtual large sensor. Is that making any right. sense? Because well, I, don't know. I, mean, I can understand how they can get the virtual large sensor through accelerometer moving through space, but I don't know how they get the depth of field. Well, if you have a really big sensor, yeah. um, it's possible to get a shallow depth of field. Right. And so you would get a really big sensor because you're moving this thing around in the air and producing mm. a virtual enormous sensor. And so you don't need um, – and, and there are lots of other things you're doing. Like you can, you can control when you're doing this the actual aperture so you have it wide right. open and you can compensate with signal-to-noise and all sorts of stuff. Like, Well, here's a, maybe a simpler one to understand. You, you pan the camera around and it starts building up a stitched image on the camera while you're holding it. And then as I keep going around a certain area, it says, oh, well, I've already been here. So why don't I change all the exposures to get high and low uh, exposures at this point? And then I can give you a tone map version because you seem to care about this area a lot. So I'll actually give you kind of HDR in that area. And it sort of builds up not only a, a high quality picture, which is much higher quality than the original uh, picture, but yeah. then on top of that, it adds... Um, the benefit that if it's been there before, as it were, it will, because it's image matching and everything else, it automatically controls exposure and builds up a high dynamic range uh, solution. So you get a very high bit depth and high resolution still out of this crappy camera. And that's just wow. like one of 15 mm -hmm. or 20, you know, blow your mind kind of examples mm. of what these guys are doing. Things like having um, coded apertures so that you can shoot wide, tons sorry shoot effectively narrow and have tons of depth of field and then put the depth of field in accurately later or have a blurred camera shot 
and it will take out the blur that was the blur caused by movement, but not the blur right. caused by depth of field. Right. And if you think about it, that is like a killer problem. But you can't wow. do that if I just give you the pitch, or you give me the pictures in post, and now these are a bit blurred. Every algorithm I've got in the, in the computer and the flame, whatever, doesn't understand the difference between blur caused by the camera moving and blur caused and by motion. depth of field. Yeah. Yeah. But the right. camera does because the camera knows how the camera was moving. And it's not just how the camera was moving, but it actually tracks it across the sensor. So yeah. in different corners, it has different blur properties or different blur kernels, as we call them. So right. it's and depending on distance from camera and yeah. So it's, yeah, but it's not even like doing it in terms of depth. It's actually doing it in terms of it kind of compensates. Well, the way that it does it kind of mathematically is you say, if I had a clean frame and I multiplied that by some blur convolution algorithm thing, added grain, I would get the crappy um, picture that I actually do have. So working in reverse, I need to take out grain and then I need to work out what this weird convolution-y thing was and then I'll get my original clean picture. And to solve that missing what was that convolution filter, if you know exactly how the camera was moving at the moment that it was, you can suddenly know what was depth of field versus what was um, was motion blur. And yeah, right. if this sounds complicated, well, yeah, because this is a research <laughs> um, you know, environment where they're actually producing Yeah, but producing this stuff filters this. down, you know, eventually. Totally. And yeah. look, I mean, if, if you were to think about what Red did, um, imagine another company came along and said, look... Uh, we're not doing 4K, but we're doing 1920 by 1080 or for that matter, stills. And um, you can fully program the camera and the chips at the back are super intelligent and it will manage everything for you. And it's basically an iPhone on steroids um, plus two. It would be a way for a company like a Red to suddenly get a seat at the table where really trying to out-resolution Red or trying to out-lens Canon would be near impossible. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, well, you know, we're in for some busy times. Why does everyone do this weird old voice when we have these sorts of discussions? Um, you're the second person that's done that to me today. Um, the other thing that's really interesting, and this is a lot more accessible and a lot less um, geeky. Well, it's actually pretty friggin' geeky, but definitely more accessible. I'm sure it is. Um, so I see, yeah, exactly. I see this thing in the schedule. It says, how to calibrate your digital sensor. And I thought, well, I should go to that because that's just the sort of thing that I could go to. And then it was like, I read the fine print. It was like how to work out the noise floor of your sensor, how to work out uh, characteristics. Yeah, if you're building a camera, how you do it. No, 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 no. So, okay. and, and how to do a whole lot of stuff to do with the profiling of your camera and your sensor. And I thought, well, finally, I'll get an answer for Jason on the ISO of a 5D. So I go, and it's in a really odd place at the show, which is huge, um, in a kind of noisy area. It's looking really disappointing. I'm thinking, ah, oh, this is going to be a waste of my time. And it felt unpolished in the sense that there was lots of other things going on. It wasn't part of the traditional papers section where it's very, very respectful and well um, sort of cordoned off. Mm. A bit like going to see a talk at a trade show. You don't really get, you know, the best results. I turn yeah. up and they go, ah, uh, it moves it to two o'clock. And the guy that's standing beside me is the guy that's giving the lecture. And he's being told this at the same time. And I'm there with like three or four of my geeky mates. And we're all like, ah. And then I realize this guy is the guy that's going to give me the lecture. And I figure, well, he can't have anything just tell planned. tell me now. That's, what I, that's exactly what you, you took the words out of my mouth. So I said, can I just buy you a coffee and we could just like have a private chat about what you're going to say? Because we all came all the way down here just to hear you talk. And, you know, that would be awesome. 
Now, Jace, I'm going to cut to the end here. I then had okay. 15 or 20 minutes of super uber geeky talk with this guy, which was awesome, but it's not what made me want to tell this anecdote. At, after 20 minutes of uber cool geeky talk that I will bore you with for weeks to come, I said, God, man, Lee, you seem to know so much about this. Like, how the heck did you learn all this? And then he goes, he's a really nice guy, really modest, really um, pleasant, very unassuming. He said, well, um, after I'd finished designing the um, Apollo 11 uh, cameras for the space missions on the moon, I went to work at Hasselblad and I went, what? (laughs) Four of us were like, back up, dude. Excuse me. So, yeah, I was awesome. working at Hasselblad, and we had to work out how to solve the uh, pressure differential compensation problems and the zero-gravity artifacts of shooting film in space when, of course, you couldn't expose the film until you'd come back through um, re-entry and stuff. And that had some interesting problems. And so, the rest of the discussion, as you could imagine, was a, a bunch of us just sitting around going, so what would you do? You know? and he's like, well, we had to drill a hole, and then there was a laser thing here. And so... I'm actually, I've asked him if did we could Did you record do this? Did you film him? Okay, here's the thing. I actually did record it, but I only recorded it for your benefit <laughs> because we were in an environment where I said, hey, can I just switch my iPhone on? Because I've got a friend that would just kill me if I don't do this. So, yes, awesome. I have a recording, but don't worry, guys that are listening. I've asked Lee if we can actually do a proper um, red room with him, and he's totally sens- agreed. Sensationally and sensationally uh, yeah. good. And, and honestly... He's done, he's down doing underwater photography and underwater housing stuff, and and it's not the stuff you think it would be. It's like underwater with flashes and shooting sharks. I mean, it's just unbelievable. So, so he started off with NASA and then adapted the Hasselblad the five hundred ELs to work in space, and then went off to work for Hasselblad. And then he did a couple of other things, and along the way, he was very successful and sold a bunch of companies. And now he's in semi retirement, and uh, he does art photography and he was asked by a friend to come to SIDGRAPH to talk about sensors because he's incredibly technically literate and uh, when he calibrated and fixed up a, another guy's Canon 5D this guy who runs part of SIDGRAPH said oh man you've got to come along to the SIDGRAPH conference because this is awesome and I mean, there are so many people that would want to hear this now wow. of course we had him sort of basically one-on-one for 45 minutes but as i said we were in an environment where it wasn't optimum i didn't have recording gear because i wasn't anticipating doing this so i recorded the podcast uh sorry i recorded some audio not for the podcast which i will give you when i get back to sydney and then lee said that he would be happy to do a proper interview when we could uh from sydney which we will totally do because um, sensational yeah and and I know that you guys like are the ultimate with... geeky blue ribbon camera service setup thing to be able to say that you had your five D uh, set up by the uh, Apollo eleven Hasselblad guy. Uh, it, within within four days of each other, I could say I had uh, Tyler set my settings and and Lee set up my um, or helped me set up the uh, the noise profile and um, and sensor oh. calibration. I mean, it was you know. It, Don't touch it. Don't touch it till I have a look. At but you know, it's like it. a kid in a candy store with, and, and and you know, it's interesting. Well, it sounds like a cool guy to to know you know to uh, pretty much cross those two kind of disciplines. I guess the analog and digital, and and be able to master both. Yeah, it really was. And for the first time ever, I found somebody that could explain to me why Nikon. Uh, He's outgunning Canon and ISO. 
I mean, that's how deep we were getting. It was just, and he, I think actually, I hope, I'm being slightly immodest here, but I hope he really enjoyed talking to us because the three or four of us that were sitting around were all hardcore. And so we were really asking him some pretty hardcore questions. And I think he loved the fact that he'd come to this weird computer science conference that he normally wouldn't go to. And then instead of the audience kind of rolling their eyes and going, well, why do I want to yeah. do this? Um, yeah. He was... And he skipped uh, the bit about the 5D. Yeah. So yeah. anyway, that, that's um, a sample of my Sensational. week. It's just awesome. awesome. Well, see, that's, that's proving that you actually go there. You physically actually go and interact with human beings and physically ask questions and don't just walk away and go, eh, stupid schedule change and actually bother to stop and speak, speak from one human to another. You actually might, actually might learn something. Yes. And yesterday, Excellent. and this has nothing to do with the Red Center, I got to see yeah. eight minutes of the new Tron film. Oh, cool. Excellent. So, is it 3D as well as 2D or is it just what's the It is, is 3D? stereoscopically shot live action yep. with obviously mm-hmm. three-dimensional visual effects. Um <laughs> the best way to describe it is it's Blade Runner meets Tron. <laughs> well, I was never a big fan of the, the original film, but uh, the trailer looks sensational for the new one. Uh, just, okay. Well, let's say look, you know something mm, there, there are members of my team that would really get upset if you said you didn't like the original Tron because it's, you know, hallowed mm. ground. And uh, yeah. Daft Punk is doing their soundtrack and apparently when they were doing the soundtrack thing, they had a meeting with the director and they basically interviewed the director to work out whether he was going to do a credible um, job of bringing the film to... Otherwise, they, the band just didn't want to perform wow. with... Um, yeah. Hey, yeah. something else about this that will interest you, which I thought was really interesting, is complete aside. There's a lot of Pixar stuff here because... Pixar's doing cool. stuff, and I'll discuss more about that in a second. But yeah, right. Um, now, what was really interesting is that uh, when they were talking about Tron, they took the whole film in rough cut up to uh, Pixar and showed them up there and did that Pixar review that they do, uh, directors giving notes, very, very mm-hmm. strong notes, but you don't have to follow them, um, right. which I thought was really interesting. Disney's actually trying to extend that uh, Pixar sort of device of review, peer review, into yeah. actually doing um, stuff for live action, which I was really impressed to hear about. Getting the director to present his board, stand up in front of all his boards. No, and um, talk, actually in this case they, they did a non-visual effects, played the reel of the, you know, where the film was at, like the rough cut. And yeah, they, right. they still had pickup shots to do. And then I, from what I can remember, like Lasseter and the rest of the guys at the Brain Trust gave notes on the project and then um, that fed into their decisions on uh, reshoots and re-editing. Fantastic. You know, unlike oh, every other that's bloody great. film lately, the guys on uh, Tron had 18 months in post, so they had a wow. genuinely good amount of time to wow. get stuff happening. It's um, Well, look, if you're going to do a well-loved sequel, I mean, there's so many films that necessarily probably shouldn't be remade, but I think that one being so, being so technically, you know, so, so graphically based... Um, Obviously, he's going to probably date more than, than than other film, other classics, I guess, and it's probably more so ripe for 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 a, a reboot. So now you might say, I why guess. are we even discussing um, Tron on uh, this show? But in fact, it was shot on stereo on two F thirty fives, or rather, it should yeah. say a huge collection of F thirty fives because they had F three in it. 3D rig would have been freaking huge. Three stereo rigs. Yeah, I know, exactly. Three stereo rigs, um, and they had witness cameras, and they had four cameras on the helmet. Because you know the thing about the young 
Do you know? You saw that in the trial? Yeah, 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 yeah. I have seen it. Young Jeff Bridges. Right, okay. So there's a young Jeff Bridges. So to do that, they have Jeff Bridges on set today with four cameras on his head, giving the performance right there and then. And they sample that and then feed that in, as opposed to what they did on um, Barton, where they had uh, Brad in a separate sort of studio environment just performing to nothing. And so, um, yeah, so there was, God, how many is that? Six plus the witness cameras plus another four. There's like 18 cameras to sync for every take. I think we should, uh, once that comes to fruition, once it pops out, we should do a bit more coverage on it or so we can track down some peeps that were on it. Well, funny you should so say that. So much stuff happening now. But oh, they, good. <laughs> they invited us to talk to, I don't know if it's going to happen, but they invited us to talk to the visual effects supervisor, the director and the producer. Excellent. Excellent. Oh, good. Well, it's good to see them actually doing something, you know, spending the time to do it right and not just rushing it out and pushing it out and doing fake 3D and, uh, yeah, all the things that are, you know, sort of undoing all the good work for people that have actually bothered to do good 3D and, and good filmmaking in the first place. And, you know, it has to be true to the fans. I, I think so. I think that's absolutely true. Um, yeah, it's I, one of those things. If you're going to tackle a classic, for, for a lot of people that's a classic, if you're going to tackle, you know, just just go hard or go home, do it right, or just, just do not even open the camera box. I do think that Disney think they're onto a major franchise. So I, the only reason I right. hesitated there is I don't think this is like yeah. they're doing it for the they're doing it for the fans, but that's not their only motivation. They they know that if this works, they'll because you know Tron isn't exactly a star property where if it doesn't have bridges in it, no one's going to go. So yeah. you know it's the Fast and Furious model where you know the the concept is stronger than the individual. I mean, I I, I think Pirates without Johnny Depp is is not that. Interesting versus, yeah, you know, what I mean? but yeah. hey, that's just yeah. my opinion. But, um, I think that digital domain once again is going to kick it out of the park with this. It's gonna be great. Well, there's plenty of other news, I guess, too. Uh, Red has a <laughs> Red has a color chart out, and uh, Ari has a camera out. <laughs> Shall we <laughs> start <laughs> tackling the, the, the news of the, the news of the month, news of the week? Um, the Red Cam book. Have you seen this, Mike? Have you been out to Red while you've been there? Or I have not. Have I to told the guys Red that Red I was uh, coming, but uh, I haven't really been in LA that much. I actually had a lot of invitations to do stuff in LA, but I've just been slammed with them. Um, yeah, absolutely. I would happily go by if uh, they had like anything they wanted me to carry home, but um, I haven't heard from them. Right. I, 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 I'm not surprised either. I, mean, I didn't expect to be, but I just... To answer your question? Yeah. Okay. All right, so um, I guess we work our way through the news. Sure. Uh, red, red has a the, their red chip, color, color. Apart from the color chart, the uh, the other news I think is that's not on our run list here is that the um, the bomb EVF is out. So they've got the viewfinder out at least, which is good because you can then obviously start ordering that, and you can obviously start using that with your red one. At least one little piece of an epic you can own early before uh, the rest of it arrives. Um, so that's pretty cool, I think, because I think the um, there's a lot of people who have been waiting a long time for their red EVFs to be on back order, so it'd be good if they can actually just you know cancel those and get a get a bomb EVF because um, you know the, uh, I haven't been a fabulous fan of the, the the original red EVF. It was quite sort of you know you got got a lot of that kind of rainbow effect with it, and it was quite a high sort of flicker and and uh, the refresh rate always seemed a little bit odd to my eye, but um, it would be uh, excellent to at least be able to get your hands on a little bit of Epic in the meantime totally. while you're waiting for the rest of it. 
Um, uh, yeah, Red Can Book. So uh, Red's launched <laughs> a color chart. I'm not quite sure really if this is any, if this is news. But hey, it doesn't sound a lot like news. It is. Well, it's Red Center. Might as well. Um, so it is. Uh, it looks beautifully made. It's 425 bucks. It's um, wire wound. What with not just a color chart, but there's framing charts and. Um, uh, uh, more in-depth color charts and grayscales, um, uh, but obviously it's dealing. It's ver- the, the obviously the, what they've done here is really nursed the color of the printing and the sharpness of of the printing really to the nth degree because we're dealing now not just with we're dealing with you know four point essentially four point five and, and in the future five K formats going to be looking at this thing. So I think they've really sort of spent a lot of time getting this thing looking really really right. It's still a lot of money for a color chart, but um, they are expensive things. I can't say I really use much, use them much, or refer to them much personally. For me, I mean, we, someone will whack a bit of a color chart at the beginning of the day, and that's the last I'll see of it. Um, graders might sort of line up to it at the beginning, but then they'll move on. But uh, a color chart's probably more your thing, Mike. It is. I, I, I'm more for a color chart, but um, yeah, I don't know that I had a problem with a Macbeth chart and. Uh, and certainly res charts before, so I'd, I'd mm. probably spend more time before I was getting overly excited because I'm not in a situation where I'm trying to calibrate to something in particular, other than just have. Must the been a reason. Well, must been a reason why Red thought this was a need need for it. There's obviously it's got a lot more colours on it than your standard kind of Macbeth colour chart. It's got a lot of great finer gradations between shades of green and and shades of like magentas. There's a lot of there's a lot more colours on 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 this chart. You're paying for all those extra colours. Yeah, I'm not quite sure that it's a bad thing either. I'm just saying I'm not. No, uh, but there must have been a reason why they, they felt it was it was uh, worth making. Mm. Okay. Okay. So, yeah, look, well, people are starting to get their Alexas out, uh, which is terrific. Um, Bill Bennett, Australian cameraman, he's uh, on Twitter, uh, a cameraman and director. He's on, on Twitter. Uh, he is Cine Bill. Uh, if you want to follow him, and he's uh, tweeting about you know getting his getting his uh, Alexa, starting to shoot with it, and obviously having having great results. So obviously they're they're definitely shipping and they're getting out in the wild. People are getting them. Uh, they're going to be pretty much in the next couple of weeks going to start to hit here in Australia too. I know a fair few people, Panavision and Red Apple are, um, and plus many more. I'm sure uh, have, have got tons on order, so they are starting to get out there in the field. So I'm looking forward to shooting with it. Uh, to that point, uh, Gary Adcock, who we who we know and we've met at uh, NAB, Mike, um, who I, I think was involved with, with Alexa when we first saw it and shot with it, he's uh, done a great video on uh, Vimeo, just running through the menu system, which is terrific, um, fascinating, I know, but uh, it's quite good to sort of see um, how easy it is to really step through the menus on on, on Alexa, and it feels very comfortable if you're at all using. Uh, comfy using using ARRI and how simple it is to sort of control stuff, even down to fine stuff of making the brightness of the display different to the brightness of the buttons, uh, the back illuminated buttons, uh, setting ISO. Everything all seems pretty easy. It's just on the wrong side of the camera. <laughs> apart from apart from that, it's it's terrific. Um, so no, it's worth a look on Vimeo. Again, links to that in the show notes. So that was uh, that was very cool to see, and it does again highlight the fact that. You know, Ari just really keeping it simple and making it the transition from film to to, to digital. You know, all the easier because this menu seems very. You know, it seems all very familiar to the, the Ari style and feels you know very comfortable if you're used to four three fives and things. 
someone else. William Shatner and Dick Van Dyke were together on the New Tech booth today. Were they? Hmm. So I throw that in there. Okay. Why? Uh, Dick Van Dyke actually likes using um, 3D stuff, and uh, William Shatner used to be um, in something called Star Trek. Yeah. Okay. Dick Van Dyke likes to do 3D stuff. Mm, Lightwave, actually. He's a long-time Lightwave user. Okay. Dick Van Dyke. Like the Dick Van Dyke. Bang Bang. Correct. Okay. In fact, when he was doing um, uh, Night at the Museum, yep. he, he was really into the visual. He talked to the guys that were on set, the supervisors, and he used to sit with the VFX supervisors and ask for light wave tips and visual effects tips and stuff. You're kidding. <laughs> I'm not, I'm, I swear to God, I'm not making it up. Okay. <laughs> it's doing my head in. Okay. What a fascinating person. I think actually yeah. William Shatner also uses um, light wave. I'm serious. Yeah. Okay. Who knew? Who knew? There you go. Yeah. That is bizarre. All right. Terrific. <laughs> this show's going so well. Well, I'm just saying it's the SIDGRAPH for you, right? It's just a bizarre yeah. freaking place. And it's in Hollywood. It's in here in LA. So it's, you know, it's, there are people cool. right, left, and center. Excellent. All right. Um, all right. Well, look, I must uh, do a quick mention to um, shout out to Stu and to Red Giant Software for uh, putting out Colorista 2, which I think is awesome. Uh, plugins for Final Cut Pro and After Effects, uh, and I'm sure a bunch of other stuff, which I'm forgetting. Um, completely forgetting because I only use Final Cut Pro. Um, but it's, yeah, it's fantastic uh, color control plugins for. Um, uh, m- many editing any edit- editing um, systems. Well, I mean, the fact uh, is, it's got regionalized color correction, right? So that's just the oh, the, the, awesomeness the secondary of its awesomeness. Secondary yeah, color the secondary color color stuff is just outstanding. I mean, as I, I said when it was first released, I really want a refund on all the hours and hours and days and months of my life, which is pretty sad that that uh, you know, so much time gets wasted trying to get secondaries right and trying to just. You know, if you just just some, you just trying to do something simple like that kid's hat is just way too red, or just you know just take one color and just reduce that down. It should not be that hard. And now they've just made it about as easy as just you know like literally like the magic um, magic brush in in um, you know in Photoshop, just literally well, clicking and it, it and it's and got that highlight it. recovery stuff as well, which is really good. Ah, uh, look, it's it's just sensational for me. It definitely, it's the secondary because you can just your your, yeah, your whole life yeah. can just ebb away, you know, trying to get that stuff right. And you've made it very easy to just do add and subtract. So if you want to, if there's if you're catching one color but you're also catching another color, you can just minus it and just almost just very very light painterly feel to it. And it's just again with all of the red giant stuff is just. What I like about it is just so intuitive and just, oh, what, I wonder what this does. Does this do it? Oh, great, it does. You know, it's very simple, very laid out. You get all the controls but without just, you know, without just that visual vomit of just a ton of sliders. So it's just, no. That's it's pretty bloody top. affordable. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, particularly if, you, if you've got um, any of the Magic Bullet stuff before or the Magic Bullet, the suite, um, I think it's like a $99 upgrade. $299, well, well worth it just if you're just buying it straight out. Um, yeah, no, it's terrific color control. And obviously you get, you know, there's there's the looks side of it as well. You get, you know, presets and saving presets and things. So it's, but I think it's just really nice to be able, very simple to to get a great look really quick. And that's what their stuff's all about. So 
well done, chaps. So go and check it out. Um, I guess it's, uh, what is it? Uh, RedGiantSoftware.com. Yeah, and there's, I guess there's a, yeah, you can download a demo and have a bit of a play with it first. So, yeah, terrific. Thank you, guys, and well done, Stu. Okay, what else we got? Um, now, what I should probably do is to go to, pop off to a bit of a red uh, red room at this stage, which uh, is a, an interview from a little, a, a moment, a, a little while back, um, but still relevant from a, a product I reviewed a couple of shows back, this, this Teradek wireless HDMI uh, cube thing. Um, I'm very, very keen to get our hands on it. And we spoke to uh, Rod Clark from Teradek just about what's clearly kept this, this kind of stuff from the market for so long is the fact that uh, wireless video, wireless video over, um, over Wi-Fi is incredibly hard. And he takes us through why the hell it is. Well, thanks, Rod, for taking the time uh, to speak to us. Really appreciate it. Hey, I'm, I'm glad to be here. I'm glad to be here. Okay, well, look, everyone's been waiting for wireless HDMI for a while. Clearly, this stuff isn't very easy to get right. Yeah, that's right. The first challenge is actually just the video processing. The chip that we use inside this this box is just a specific H.264 high-profile level 4.1 video processing chip. And it's like a Herculean little chip that, costs us a lot of money and we have to put a ton of support around the thing to get it to do this you know we take something like 3000 megabits and crush it down to between 6 and 10 per right. second you know so it, it's a it's a massive level of compression and yet at the same time the output level is still you know uh in the case of all, all of our products 1080p60 in the case of the cube it's a 1080i60 uh, so just the horsepower alone to do this is is more significant than I think people realize. And then the, the the second big challenge is the network issues itself. And you know the the network cloud presents a real problem in in the sense that it's not in your control. So anytime you leave our box and you hit a network, it's beyond your control. Even if it's your network, you start to feel a little bit out of control. You have to figure out how to get. Uh, you know, from point A to point B, and especially if you go over the internet, how to how to do that happily? You know, and uh, you have server issues, and you know, video conversion issues, and and streaming issues, and all kinds of issues. So it's actually a bit of a challenge. Well, you've cracked it. Yeah, we've been doing it now for about four years, and we've spent about a million and a half dollars investing specifically in this technology, and. We have some really bright guys who are able to to do this, and you know that that's all they know. All they know how to do is get video from point A to point B over a network. Well, let's step back to the cube and just give us a snapshot on it and its capabilities and where it's at. So the cube is in the final stages of development right now. We've got our poor software guys working. <laughs> around the clock, <laughs> like Conan the Barbarian grinding the wheat. <laughs> Cube, as far as we can tell, is the first product of, a, of its kind, which is a camera top HD video encoder. We use a really advanced compression technology called H.264 High Profile Level 4.1. Now, a lot of people hear the word H.264, and it's kind, it's kind of a buzzword, but I'll, I'll tell you something quickly about H.264. The difference between a, a baseline level 1 or level 2 uh, H.264 
and a high profile level 4.1 is kind of like the difference between you know a little uh, Piaggio scooter and a Ferrari. The uh, they're they're really made for two different things, and the compression that we use is really sort of the the Formula One car of compression. So it really does. It provides uh, fantastic, uh, fantastic video quality. Right. So we're not going to see some hobbled version of uh, the original signal. Yeah. So the challenges, I'll, I'll give you the, the, the honest to goodness challenges that we're facing right now. The challenges that we're facing right now are, are with the Wi-Fi. So with Cube, there's basically two ways to do Wi-Fi, right? And with any, with, with any Wi-Fi connection, there's two ways to do Wi-Fi. One is called ad hoc and one's called infrastructure. So ad hoc is the, the, the cube broadcasts its IP address, and the receiving end, say, for example, a, a laptop or an iPad, connects directly to it. Infrastructure mode means that you hit a Wi-Fi router or a level two managed switch, and then the video is spread out over your network. Or at worst, you go through a laptop that then rebroadcasts it. Right, say like a Mac mini server or something that's running a QuickTime streaming server. So so the, the challenges specifically that, that we're having are with Wi-Fi because the Wi-Fi comes from an internal USB adapter and we, we run up against the limit of about six megabits a second, which is right about where we need to be but at the same time, we're kind of running the cube at full throttle to get the Wi-Fi out of the box. It's what the Mobiligen, where our, our chip is called a Mobiligen chip, it's what the Mobiligen chip has allotted to the USB is the limit. So, of course, we're working with Mobiligen. We're one of their you know, uh, uh, partnering uh, developers. So we're working with them to, to make that run faster. And so that's part of the reason why we can run uh, 1080i but not 1080p 60 because at 1080p you're running at 10 megabits. So you're getting still excellent video quality. So ad hoc mode, say, say for example, we're downtown. You're downtown in Sydney and you're walking around and you've got, you're the DP and you've got the cube on top of the camera and you don't have video village and you don't want to be tethered, but you still want to have monitoring. What do you do? You're going to stream to a single device because you're handheld, you're doing guerrilla filming, you're walking around. You're going to be able to stream through ad hoc only to a single device. Um, so the, and that could be an iPad, that could be an iPod Touch, it could be a MacBook Pro, et cetera, et cetera. Now, if you've got a set and you're moving around a set, you're going to use what's called infrastructure mode. And you're going to have, as part of your network, a level two managed switch. Now, going back to the ad hoc mode, uh, what's the yep. limitation with, uh, say, just one uh, receiver? The little Wi-Fi router inside of the cube streams out a signal, and you basically, when you're in ad hoc mode, you connect to that stream using a static IP address. I believe that cube has the ability to do multicast, which means that multiple people could connect to it. But what happens is very quickly, you run into the limits of the, what the Wi-Fi is capable of broadcasting. So that's that's why it's a it's a single point to point. Well, let me be devil's advocate then. I'd say the first thing people are going to want to do is put this thing on the camera and then go, here you go, agency, here's your iPad, and here, client, here's your iPad. Let's see, how do, how do you phrase this? The, <laughs> the, 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 the best answer is the most truthful answer, which is you can't just turn on Cube and have it go to 20 or 30 people. You're going to have to have one additional piece of gear that's going to help you rebroadcast to to those people. So what? So essentially, uh, a level two managed switch is kind of like imagine it being like a little card dealer, right? And so, so the cube is going to stream a single 
stream of video to the level two managed switch. And coming out of the cube, it's going to have the, the bandwidth of one video stream, right? Right. It's, it's not, it, it, and so what that allows us to do is, you know, like I said before, we have limitations on what the Wi-Fi is capable of doing. The limitation is going to be, say, six megabits. Uh, for now, of course, it's going to get better down the road. So, so say, for example, it's six megabits. We're going to stream you six megabits. You're going to hit your level two managed switch, which is basically, it's just a little Wi-Fi router. What it does is it multicasts coming out the other side. So it takes the video signal and it becomes the little card dealer for it. And it says, oh, okay, so you want some? Here's some for you. Here's some for you. Here's some for you. And it spreads it around with a nice, strong, clean, multicast signal that anybody on set can reach. Right. And, and there, I mean, having an internal Wi-Fi unit, there's definitely going to be limitations as far as the distance goes. And you're definitely going to be better off um, if you want to spread the signal around further, you know, if you want to be a hundred feet away or 200 feet away, you're going to be better off using a nice powerful level two match switch that, that really realistically can, can just be sitting at, back in video village. Excellent. Okay. And now there's also audio. Audio. Yes. And our audio comes in through the, the uh, HDMI and compresses just using uh, just AAC and it's, Good quality audio. Good, you know, it's like good CD quality audio. Right. Okay. Next question. How do we power it? Ah, good question. If you have this thing connected to the Ethernet, it will actually just need the power of the Ethernet to power it because it's only two and a half watts. Right. Um, but I suspect that most people will not be doing that. So we have a terminal block so that you can make any connector you want, but also we're going to be providing a connector so that you can connect to your camera power through the Anton Bauer system. And it's a variable DC input. I think it's uh, 9 to 24. So any camera power that you have available that's DC, you can make a little connector that's specific to your situation and pop it in there and off you go. Now, obviously, one of the main big questions is going to be latency. Is there going to be much of a delay? Because on set, uh, uh, you can handle a little bit of delay, but too much becomes uh, an issue. Right, right, right. The latency, if you are going to, say, a laptop, is... Probably, I would say, between 200 and 300 milliseconds, so Mm -hmm. a a quarter of a second, something like that, which is really nice. The issue that we're having currently, that we're actually in the the process of resolving, is with the iPad. So the way the iPad works, the the format that it streams in, it streams uh, HTTP live streaming is the format, and it goes directly into uh, the Safari browser. And what happens with the iPad is, is currently that using the Safari browser, it buffers. Right. So there's something like a 10-second latency if you mm-hmm. go to an iPad. So the way around this is instead of using HTTP Live, you use RTP, which is a different encapsulation. So what we're doing right now is we're working with a third party who are iPad developers to develop a, a specific app that yeah. should be done when the cube units really become available. So currently here in-house, we have a 10-second latency. But we're we're anticipating that it's going to be, you know, sub 500 millisecond latency. We won't be using any of the Apple browsers. We'll just be using our own little, our own little Teradek browser, and then that that'll wipe out the latency. Excellent. Too much latency would be a bit of a, a fun killer. Yes, yeah, I mean, especially if if you're a director and you're chasing around a cameraman in a handheld application, and you're you know right on his belt buckle, trying to frame the shot and whispering in his ear and 
you, you don't want 20 second latency or 15 second latency that's gonna that, that's a killer now once you release it and find improvements is there a way to do any software updates yep it's field upgradable and it's going to be something that uh, we will have it on our website and you'll just be able to download the latest up, update and it just takes a couple minutes okay so last two questions are going to be uh, when can we get our hands on one and how much is it going to cost there's going to be a 60 piece beta unit run that is going to become available um, on the 15th or 19th of July and those those 50 units are going to be available to a hand-selected group of people who are going to become essentially partners with us in doing the final run of field testing. Um, and then the first production run of this should be available, and I believe it's going to be 400 units are going to be available as of the 1st of August. And the price point, um, we're still finalizing the details, but... Um, I can tell you that it's going to be below 2000 is what we're shooting for. It's an interesting thing with, with pricing a product like this. Our video encoders that we sell for the commercial market, for the pro AV market, are you know, between six dollars and $8,000. This thing has 90% of the functionality of those things. But we want to share it with more people, both Nickel and I. Our filmmakers. the The CEO Nickel is he has a 5D Mark II. He's an avid photographer. He's a photo nerd all the way. I come from the movie background, and I've done a bunch of filming in the past. And I I want to feel like we're contributing to the the community of independent filmmakers by providing something that's a real value to them at a price that's a real value to them. Excellent. Thank you, Rod, for um, taking the time. Really appreciate it. Cheers. Thanks so much. So, Jace, uh, will they? I mean, do you really confident they're going to get that latency down? Uh, yeah, seem to be. It's just a matter of you know those iPhone apps. They know the technology and they know what they have to do to um, to do it. It's just uh, you know essentially just creating an app from nothing. And uh, yes, yeah, so I'm pretty confident. I think uh, they know what they've got to do. It's just doing it. But uh, I think one thing's clear is that you know it's a bit of the that they are keen to develop this as they go, to develop in, in concept with, with, with people, get it out into the wild, get it into, onto set, get it with users. And obviously, we're not locked into it. What you buy now is, is not locked in. Software updates, you know, on set, you can do, you know, obviously software updates via the, the iPad or whatever you're, you're broadcasting to. So, you know, I'm sure if it's, even if it's 90% there, they'll get the other 10% later through updates. So I just like that open... That sort of open, you know, upgradable thing. Excellent. Well, I have to go because there's a yes, Disney so I. party I need to go to and <laughs> enjoy. Uh, one quick little shout out before we go is uh, the LA Red Users Group is having a meeting August seventh in Burbank. Um, Avid will be there going through Red Workflows. Focus Optics will be showing their gorgeous little uh, Ruby short zoom, uh, gorgeous pri- um, zoom lens. Uh, Omni Rig will be there showing their three D rig. Uh, who we know and and love uh, presenters and more gear. So go to reduser.groupla.com uh, for the details. And thanks to Igor Ridanovic for pinging us those details. Thank you. Well, Jace, it's going to be nice to see you in person. Um, yes, I'm it's nice to getting a bit show. homesick for my family. And uh, so next time I see you, will be hopefully next week. So enjoy the rest of your cornflakes shoot or <laughs> cereal shoot. 
Jail do. Thank you. And post on that party? Today? Uh, yeah, we're start, I'm going to start cutting that uh, today. And I'm in post for two or three other things, trying to make 7D stuff match 5D stuff and uh, trying to make Phantom match Red stuff. And, uh, yeah, so all interesting. So we'll sort of catch up with that on, on when you get back home. And for those of you that want to check out Tyler's work from Yellowstone National Park, it's over at fxphd.com, and that's the DOP course uh, run by Tyler. And it's one of... Uh, I, I can't recommend this enough. Like it is really like I'm not, I don't normally kind of, you know, plug stuff hard. But that one, if you're yeah. at all interested in this stuff, it's just a wealth. It's like film school for a year in a in a in a semester. Anyway, that's enough. Yeah, but there definitely you go. worth doing. I will put um, as I say, I'll put some of those pictures you sent me in the show notes as well. So that's also a must. Uh, yeah, definitely sign up. That's like red user, uh, red user on crack. <laughs> yes. Yes. <laughs> no, I said Red Center on crack. Um, thank you, Mike. Talk to you later, man. Have a great party. Talk to you soon. See you guys. Bye. Thanks for listening. If you have any questions or comments, please email us red at fxguide.com. Copyright 2010. FX Guide, LLC.